you cannot do it unless you are willing to go all the way and risk being fully marginalized if you fail. That's the key. There, There is no, you know, I mean, there's just, just no middle ground there. There's no, there's no, you know, third way, if you will. It's, it's either you're running against the establishment and you're going to change that establishment and you're going to essentially um, take power from the establishment or you're going to try to make the existing system sort of tweak it, uh, tweak it somewhat to make it work, but you're not really uh, committed to a political revolution. And I think that's what we learned. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the podcast a uh, new guest, David Sirota, who um, was uh, or maybe still is a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, formerly a journalist. Uh, I'm not sure what the future holds for for David, but I'm sure it will be pretty bright. Um, welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah. So um, I just I wanted to get your thoughts on you know, sort of the ongoing debate over, you know, why Bernie Sanders uh, did not secure the Democratic nomination and, and why Joe Biden did. Um, you you had a, a good uh, piece on Substack about this, which, which we'll link to. Um, and so, you know, maybe, I mean, we can come at this from, from a variety of different angles, but Maybe we could start with, you know, your, you know, perception of kind of the shortcomings of, you know, the Bernie campaign, maybe decisions that they, uh, you know, could have could have made better. Sure. I mean, let me just preface this by saying I think that Bernie Sanders ran a a historic campaign that if you take the long view of what happened, it was uh, a we didn't win. So that wasn't successful. But there were a lot of other successes against a lot of uh, big odds. Sure, you know, sure. The, the uh, an independent, uh, self-described democratic socialist uh, being one of the last two standing candidates in a uh, multi-candidate field, uh, presidential field, is pretty incredible unto itself. Uh, and I, I think that most people would agree that Bernie Sanders won the uh, policy and ideological debate in the Democratic Party if exit polls are to be believed. And by that, I mean that the you know, ma- large majorities of Democratic voters uh, support the basic agenda that he has pushed that it's worth saying was not necessarily the agenda of the Democratic Party 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So th- those are all uh, uh, big victories. But you know, it, it was not a victory. We, we did not succeed. We we lost. and 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 I believe that 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 there were a lot of external forces that were beyond our control that we knew about going in that were extremely powerful. I mean, we had, um, uh, you know, the corporate establishment was against our campaign, doing a lot of scaremongering about, you know, things like Medicare for all. Uh, you had the institutional power of a Democratic Party uh, against us. We were running against a vice president, a former, excuse me, former vice president. And, you know, this this little fact wasn't very well mentioned all that often, but uh, if at all, but you know, we, in the last 68 years, anytime a vice president an immediate past or current vice president has run a serious campaign for president, they have been the nominee of their party. So that's not just some obscure stat that suggests that there's a, a lot of institutional power that comes with being a party's vice president. So 
those were the external forces stacked against us. And so I so so the tactical and strategic decisions that we made, I, I don't want to portray them at, had we made different decisions, we automatically would have won. I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not that that you know sort of self-aggrandizing to think that you know <laughs> had, we, had we done th- it this way instead of that way, we ought we probably would have won. Uh, I, I just don't want to go that far. But I can tell you that's all of that is preface to say that look, it's well known among people who follow this stuff that I was one of a, a group of people in the campaign who for months and months and months was saying, look, Joe Biden is our biggest problem here. Um, you know, J- Joe Biden um, is the main force, uh, the main opposition, uh, not only against our agenda, but the, our main obstacle to winning the race. And therefore, we need to be contrasting with Joe Biden as much as possible, not once in a while, not just at the end, but every single day, every single opportunity that we have to contrast uh, Bernie's agenda with Joe Biden's record is what we must do. And periodically, Bernie Sanders did that. And when he did it, he was extremely successful. Uh, He did it in uh, Iowa on the uh, issue of Social Security. Uh, He uh, did it um, in in New Hampshire, uh, both against Biden and Pete Buttigieg. And when Bernie Sanders is uh, in a conflict on the the terms that, that are that promote his agenda, that is when I believe Bernie Sanders is most effective. I think we could have done more of that. I mean, there were many times where we didn't take the full opportunity to do that. And I think had we done that more aggressively for weeks and weeks and weeks, that it could have prevented the the electability argument from, from setting in and being a, a presumption about Joe Biden's candidacy. That happened. Joe Biden was just presumed after a while to be this Teflon candidate who, you know, uh, was the most electable candidate. And and I think that, that at the moment that we lost South Carolina, when, you know, Beto, Amy Klobuchar, and Wine Cave Pete all came in behind Joe Biden, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I believe that had we been contrasting more sharply and consistently, we would have at least been in a better position to try to to withstand uh, that tidal wave. Would we have won had we contrasted more sharply and clearly uh, the entire campaign? I, I, I don't want to go that far and say I know we would have won, but I do right. believe that it was it was a missed opportunity over again weeks and weeks and months and months to not be consistently and constantly framing the debate and the 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 choice in voters' mind as Bernie Sanders represents progressive change and Joe Biden is a candidate who is literally promising his donors that nothing would fundamentally change. We who follow politics knew that that was the contrast, but to the average voter who's going about their daily lives, if you're not reiterating that over and over and over again all the time, then there's a chance that that message, that choice is not going to be necessarily front and center in their mind by the time they cast their votes. 
Right. Now let me ask you, David, because I'm, I'm on board 100% with the idea that, you know, there are limits to political agency and to the ability of a campaign, uh, everyone included, to, to control the effects. And so, you know, Machiavelli said with, with a ruler, it's about 50% virtue or, or control or agency and skill and about 50% uh, Lady Fortuna, you know. And, and of course, we, we, we know that Marx says we make history, but not under the conditions of our choosing and all that. So, I'm curious, not about what could have happened in counterfactuals, but in terms of why, uh, as you say, the contrast wasn't uh, applied more often. It, do you think that was a function of, I mean, look, for a while, everyone thought, poor Biden, somebody should pull him. You know, he's, he's, he's going, he's sundowning. We, you know, maybe don't punch down and, and the poor guy looks like he doesn't know where he is during the debates. Uh, you know, how much was it? There are all these other candidates. Buttigieg looked like the threat for a minute, right? How, how much was that lack of contrast something like that versus you know the tyranny of decorum as as you point out or the or the idea that uh you know the media was spinning you shouldn't fight dirty which is just a a historical ridiculous thing both in terms of actually winning and in terms of this race relative to other ones so yeah how do you explain that that uh lack of contrast uh consistency well i I think it was a there were self-reinforcing factors uh, that that all went together. So I think that, as I said in, in in my newsletter, I think that you know, one, Bernie Sanders is not a scorched earth politician. He's not a politician who um, is known as somebody who um, loves contrastive politics versus other um, candidates. I mean, he contrasts with the with the establishment as a kind of um, intangible idea. He certainly goes up against specific corporations, but in a rough and tumble of a campaign, I mean, he is not known as a, a just a scorched earth, uh, one-on-one kind of candidate. So that was one factor. There's also adding to that the factor that Bernie Sanders likes and knows Joe Biden and has liked, has known and liked him for years and years and years. So I just, you know, at some level, part of this is, you know, politics is no matter the biggest politics, it it can be personal. Um, so, so that was a factor. I don't think those were determining factors, but I think those were, that those are factors. And then adding up all of that into a political environment in which the, Democratic Party establishment and Democratic adjacent media were casting every even mild contrast as some sort of vicious attack. What I call this tyranny of decorum, where decorum and etiquette and being nice to each other is is presumed and portrayed to be the most important thing that we can't have a rough and tumble primary for fear of undermining uh, the who the whoever is the nominee's uh, electability. That that environment then uh, created a a very stifling environment. And so you had so again so to summarize, you had a candidate who's not super comfortable uh, being a scorched earth candidate uh, who also happens to like personally, the candidate he's running against, going into an environment in which even mentioning a a congressional floor speech about the Iraq war, that Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war, is considered some sort of horrible scandal. And, you know, you're you're not going to, it became an uphill fight to have us contrast on a day-to-day basis. And and I want to be clear, it's worth underscoring, because I have been really surprised. I mean, I have seen people 
on social media. And look, social media, people say all sorts of crazy things, but the social media, email, you know, I've heard I, I, people have said it to me in, in my own life, you know, oh, this is like the most negative campaign, a negative, <laughs> negative primary. I just, I can't remember. I mean, Bernie is just so negative. And, and you're like, have you, have you been asleep for 50 years? Like, what are you talking about? Like, literally, what, what in God's name are you talking about? Literally, like, have you met the Clintons? <laughs> I mean, and I'm not, I don't want to be clear. I'm not like blaming the Clintons. I'm not even no, saying no, the Clintons normal, are yeah. wrong. Like, yeah, yeah. you go back and you watch Hillary Clinton's ads against Barack Obama. And they are, I mean, she's Vicious. almost explicitly calling him corrupt. Barack Obama fires back saying she's a puppet of, of lobbyists. You know, John right. Kerry, you know, blowtorching Howard Dean. And, and I believe all of that is actually fine. Like, I, I'm no yep. fan of Hillary Clinton. I've got my issues with Barack Obama. I've written about that. But, but Democratic primaries are supposed to vet the eventual nominee. That the rough right. and tumble, the back and forth, even the harsh back and forth, is what road tests and battle tests the candidates to for whoever is going to be the general election nominee. I mean, Barack Obama was 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 flamethrowered by the Clintons in 08. And I would argue that made him a stronger nominee in the general election. I do not buy the idea, having now worked on seven campaigns, I do not buy the idea that, that tough primaries weaken general election nominees. Because the, the argument that tough primaries weaken general election, election nominees is predicated on something that is ridiculous, an idea that is absurd. Which is to say, it is predicated on an idea that if you criticize, let's say, Joe Biden's record on uh, trade, uh, voting for NAFTA, the China trade deals, pushing TPP, if you criticize him in the primary and um, you criticize him too harshly, goes the argument, you're going to weaken him if he's the eventual nominee. And then when he's the eventual nominee, he'll be weaker and that'll help him lose to Trump. That presumes... That if you mention NAFTA, China, PNTR, and the TPP in the primary, that that's the only way Donald Trump would know about that, that Joe Biden <laughs> was for NAFTA, China, PNTR. Oh my, like Donald Trump. Oh my God, I didn't know that that Joe Biden was for now. Wow, this is great. Like it's so absurd. The point being that you litigate these issues in the primary for two reasons. One, you suss out whether a a candidate's weakness is in fact a fatal electoral weakness. That's one thing. You, so, and you can suss that out at a time when the party potentially has a chance to choose someone else. And two, at minimum, you get the eventual nominee prepared in real time to respond effectively to the to that criticism in a more comfortable or a more safe primary internal party primary environment than having to deal with it having never dealt with it in the perilous general election when you've got a billion dollars worth of ads negative ads coming at you from Donald Trump so so i just the, the whole like be nice in a primary in order to strengthen the general election nominee have a coronation rather than a rough and tumble drag it out battle in the primary that's better for the party it just it just doesn't make any logical sense yeah, you you could even say, you know, that Bernie um maybe made a similar mistake in 2016 and 2015, you know, famously he kind of uh was was gentlemanly towards Hillary Clinton about her email scandal. Um, you know, it's you know, what did he say like the the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. 
And I was like, oh, you know, what a what a nice fellow, uh, Bernie. But that issue did indeed come to dominate the entire general election campaign. And Hillary Clinton was not able to put it away. And, it, you know, if if he had, uh, you know, pressed that issue really strongly, I think you're probably correct that either, you know, Clinton would have like dealt with it in a convincing fashion or it would have, you know, maybe put Bernie over the top by convincing people that she had no answer. And then it was just going to be this festering thing that would just keep going through, uh, you know, November, which is what happened, right? Well, yeah. And so, and, and I would say, look, I would say to this, I don't think that, that, that you need to always be doing contrast on everything. It's not a kitchen sink idea. I mean, I, I wasn't on the 2016 campaign. Uh, I, I have, yeah. like, I could see an argument either way for Bernie should have doubled down on 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 the email stuff or he did the right thing strategically because because what you want to do is you want to create um conflict on on a set of issues that both um right help you as well yeah. help you stress your positive agenda and spotlight a weakness in your opponent so so we could debate the specific email issue or not I, sure. I i'm not sure that that would have been a good call but but the larger point the the larger point is that conflict is not bad the culture of conflict aversion that the establishment puts out there the democratic establishment puts out there which by the way aimed almost exclusively at progressives which is not a coincidence that 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 this idea that you know all these other candidates can run around saying that you know Medicare for all is insane and the worst thing ever, and Bernie Sanders is a, is a is you know a communist and et cetera. That that's all fun. This tyranny of decorum apparently doesn't apply to a right wing <laughs> criticism. That's right, yeah. But 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 you know the conflict aversion in general in a, in a primary just will not serve the Democratic Party. It and and I would argue that 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 my argument about that is supported by the modern history of the Democratic Party, that the presidents of the Democratic Party who, who were able to win, uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, the primaries that they went through were uh, not a cakewalk. They were very difficult, and that made them stronger general election uh, nominees. And, and we are now standing in a moment in which we had the weakest democratic primary in modern history and we now have an essentially an unvetted or at least unchallenged uh, a nominee who, whose record has not been road tested and challenged uh in the kind of intense way that it will be in the general election and for anybody who wants to see donald trump defeated who knows that that is the number one priority which i know i, I that is my position Having an unvetted, unchallenged, untested nominee is terrifying. That That is not where we should want to be. I don't care if you were for Bernie Sanders or you were for Joe Biden or you were for some other candidate. If you believe that Donald Trump, defeating Donald Trump is the number one priority at this point, then having a nominee who has not been road tested in a tough primary, that should terrify you. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, on the on the 1992 campaign, it, it's worth going back to watch some of the debates between Bill Clinton and Jerry Brown. I mean, they were just at daggers drawn. I mean, vicious personal insults. It's kind of mm-hmm. funny to watch. But um, I wanted to um, uh, change. I, I should I should stop you there. I mean, I would I would suggest at, at some point, like play play for your audience the audio. Sure, yeah, of, I can do that. Of Barack Obama's speech. Uh, it's linked in my right. it's linked in my piece in which he's talking about Hillary Clinton and the and and lobbyists and and the bankruptcy bill. I mean, just folks, folks, they don't they don't tell you what they mean. <laughs> Senator Clinton, we were talking about the bankruptcy bill. We're talking about the bankruptcy bill. This is a bill she voted for in 2001 that that the credit card companies and the banks have been pushing to make it harder for people to get out of debt after they've been induced with these teaser rates and suddenly they got 30% interest on their credit cards and folks are going bankrupt for and, and they're trying to file bankruptcy but they've made it harder to get out of these debts. So Senator Clinton votes for this. So she's asked about it by Tim Russert. And she explains, well, sort of, I don't know, here's why I did this. And then she says, I voted for it, but I was glad to see that it didn't pass. <laughs> What does that mean? What? No, seriously, what does that mean? If, it, if, you, if, you, if you didn't want to see it pass, then you, you can vote against it. Just so yeah. because I, you, you well, play it and people are like, oh my God, I can't write it. I you know, I mean, that even I, happened. I think all the time about the difference between, say, LBJ and Jimmy Carter. And, and this is a question I have for you that, that, I mean, LBJ was a dick. You know, he was, a, he, he was effective though. And, and Jimmy Carter, nice guy. Everyone loves him. And, and so when you think about what inspires people about Bernie, so much is his integrity, his principle. And there, there seems to be this conflation between purity, principle, um, and, and, I mean, the left gets attacked for for not compromising and for being vicious and all these things, too. So it's a little confusing because, you know, you got Bernie getting slammed for not um, calling people on their birthday and not rubbing the back of Jib Clyburn or whatever. And then he gets then he gets slammed, I think, rightly for not going after Biden when Biden straight up lied about his his record in the debate with the bankruptcy bill. I mean, that could have been a moment where, where Bernie said, Joe, this is a straight up lie. And, and, and in fact, the people of this country shouldn't support someone who would lie so blatantly about such an important issue. So, so, you know, how do you, how do you blend principle and integrity with, with the kind of righteous anger and uh, as well as relationship building? Uh, it's a tricky thing, right? Well, I would, I would, I would flip it around and, and say this, and, and, and I want to be, I want to preface this by saying that I think Bernie Sanders is a deeply principled person. He has been my political hero for 21 years. Um, you know, uh, my res- my great respect for him uh, w- has not changed and it will not change, period, full stop. All of that said, I believe that principle and um, integrity uh, requires that if you are going, that, that, that that you have to fight as hard as you can. And I think Bernie did fight as hard as, as he could. I really do. But here's my, here's my point. The difference, the difference between what I've, I've said where the campaign wanted to go and, and where, and, and we, and I want to be clear, we, we, we did this periodically. It's not like we, we never did it, but the, 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 the strategic differences that, the, the, or the strategic debate that we had in the campaign, 
it was, I believe, a difference over tactics and not values and principle. It wasn't like, you know, Bernie was like, you know, too afraid to fight for his principles. I just think it was a tactical dispute, right? And we should not, um, we should not mistake tactical disputes with disputes over values. Uh, But I, but I would also say this, that the primary election to my mind Bernie's theory was, and has long been, and this is not even controversial to really say, that you have to have, you ha- as you organize on the outside, as you pressure on the outside, especially as a politician is part of, and he is, he is a, there's a very rare politician who works with the outside in any real way, like he does, so, but that's very rare. But if you're going to be, if you're going to play that role, it also helps to, to keep some foot inside, if not the establishment, then the tent of the sort of traditional political system. So, so that you be, otherwise you run the risk of being marginalized, uh, made irrelevant, turned into Ralph Nader, and then nobody can hear you. And that has been Bernie's strategy. And he, it has been a successful, very successful strategy as a U.S. senator uh, as a House member, as a mayor, to get things done and also push the envelope. You cannot deny that. But if you are running for the top office to run the entire country and obviously run the party, that I believe one potential takeaway from this primary is that that inside-out model will not work. That, 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 you, you, that, that, that there is no, and, you know, there is no middle ground. That if you're going to run to take out the establishment and truly lead a political revolution, that you 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 cannot do it unless you are willing to go all the way and risk being fully marginalized if you fail. That's right. the key. There there is no you know I mean there's just just no middle ground there. There's no there's no you know, third way, if you will. It's it's either you're running against the establishment <laughs> yeah. and you're going to change that establishment and you're going to essentially um, take power from the establishment or you're going to try to make the existing system sort of tweak it, uh, tweak it somewhat to make it work, but you're not really uh, committed to a political revolution. And I think that's what we learned. And and I want to be, I just want to say one last thing about that. I Again, I don't think it's like Bernie sold out the revolution. I don't think that at all. I think that it's just, he had a tactical strategic view of how to do it. And I think that he got close, but I think that ultimately that tactical strategic view the, the limits of that tactical strategic view were illustrated in the results. Yeah, the um, I mean, to, to more evidence for that, um, you know, argument, I would say, is the, the the failure of Elizabeth Warren, you know, who had a much more inside outside, you know, maybe 50 50, whereas uh, Bernie was maybe 75 percent outside. Right, and she and she performed way worse. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it also seems that uh Absent, you know, if things had broken down just slightly differently, Bernie maybe could have won. I mean, you look at, you know, he's going into uh, South Carolina and he's like roughly tied with Biden, maybe behind by slightly. Then Clyburn endorses Biden, which changes the polls dramatically overnight. Um, And then uh, Biden wins a huge victory. Then overnight again, everyone else drops out endorses uh biden even you know which is kind of unprecedented because Buttigieg was still in the running you know he had 
I think the the you know second or third most number of delegates, um, and you know it's it's extremely uh, odd for a person who was still in the running to drop out that early before Super Tuesday. Yet he did, reportedly on advice from Barack Obama. And that came, you know, um, as I said, immediately on the heels uh, of of South Carolina. And then there's a huge burst of positive media for Biden that he didn't have to spend anything to get. And um, then, you know, his polls start shooting up. And also Elizabeth Warren does not drop out and endorse uh, Bernie. And so she probably tips the tide in two or three states from what, what Bernie would have won. And, um, you know, if if any of those things had changed, uh, I think if Clyburn doesn't endorse, then Bernie's probably on top now. If Elizabeth Warren did uh, did not stay in, she uh, probably Bernie would be at least tied. You know, if the other endorsements don't happen, Bernie probably wins most of Super Tuesday states. So, um, you know, to obviously there's some coordination going on there, but it's also like just the happenstance of luck and how the primary calendar happened to break down in this particular year. Like it seemed like, you know, Bernie's sort of strategy was working and then he just hit a, just a rough patch and that was it. And then coronavirus and, you know, we're done. Um, so I completely, I completely agree, but I would, I would say this, that it, it really was a perfect storm of, uh, of circumstances and establishment pushback. I and mean, people have asked me, why did South Carolina, why was it, why, how could Bernie have won three contests and then South Carolina happens and South Carolina is portrayed as a much bigger deal than all the other three contests. And my metaphor <laughs> is that South Carolina was really, it was, it was spring loaded by the media and the political establishment. It was, it was, by that I mean, the media was waiting for a comeback story. Obviously, the, the 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 Democratic adjacent media was not was was very upset about Bernie's success leading up to yeah. that and wanted a a a story of taking down you know Bernie uh, and you know the political establishment you know moving those candidates in behind Bernie and then the additional icing on the cake is Elizabeth Warren you know not getting out before Super Tuesday and and you know that was her choice that you know I don't begrudge that in the sense of like. Every candidate's got to make that choice. But just on the math of it, yes, I mean, you know, we can look at the math and 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 all those factors hurt us. I would just say, that's why I was saying, I, I don't think had we contrasted with Biden for months and months and months that I can say with full confidence that that, that we would have won because the, the, what I've just described, those factors were, were extremely powerful. But I, I do feel like I can say with confidence that we would have been in at least a better position to deal with that tidal wave. And I will add that if you are Bernie Sanders running with the agenda that you're running, you have got to operate. And I think in large part we did, but maybe, you know, maybe not enough, but you've got to operate on the presumption that they are going to try to take you out with everything. Yeah, that right. all that all of those factors, yes, there's some of them are random, some of them are not, some of them are coordinated. Yeah, you know, that that you have to operate from the presumption that something like that is going to happen. I mean, there's a having worked on campaigns, there's a there's a saying that kind of uh, uh, sums that up, which is that if you're a challenger candidate, especially, even if you if you're ten points ahead in the polls, you run as if you're ten points behind. And, and I'm not saying Bernie, you know, ran a Rose Garden campaign at, at all. 
I'm just saying that that you have to have the boot on the neck of your opponent all the way until the end of the game, and you've got to be doing it for weeks and weeks and months and months. I mean, I liken the, you know, after Iowa uh, and New Hampshire, where Biden looked like he was out. I mean, I even remember saying this to to a, a friend of mine on the campaign. I said, you know, it kind of feels like that scene in the horror movie where, like, the 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 bad guy, the villain, the, the monster is like there was a fight, and then the bad guy, the the, the monster is looks like they're they're done, looks like they're dead, but then it's like the monster comes yeah. back to yeah. life. I mean, I'm not calling Joe Biden like a monster, but but you know, I'll do like, it. I will. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like an army of darkness. I don't know if it's one of my favorite movies where you know yeah. the, the the monster looks like he's dead, and then and then the guy's about to touch the monster, and 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 the other guy goes, "It's a trick. Get an axe." Right? It's like you have to know that. That, like, it's not over until it's over and the boot must be on the neck even when you believe your opponent is down. And so, you know, like, all of those factors came to be and, and now yeah. we are where we are. Yeah, it's it's like in law they say uh, there's two types of causation. There's the but for cause, you know, but for this happening, but for that happening, but for that yep. happening. And there's, there's a lot of those. Uh, I do think that, that Ryan was describing the proximate cause, it, it, you know, and that the establishment came together right when it had to and did all the things it had to do. And it was just a brutal, brutal force to, to overcome. Um, but I do think there's something about, you know, the Machiavellian notion that you have to know how to not be good and, and go for the jugular, like you said, or, or put your, your foot on the neck. Um, so, so like what, what lessons do we draw besides that, 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 that need to, to press, uh, what, what, what can we take away? Because I think a lot of, uh, Bernie supporters are, are really kind of down and angry and feeling a lot of things. But as we've seen from Occupy to, to 2016 to, to now, um, progress has a lot of stops and starts. And, and, you know, Occupy wasn't a failure because it gave us the 99% versus the 1%. And how, how can we, we learn from this and, and move forward in a productive way? Look, I'm, I, I, I am optimistic in the long term and, and somewhat nervous and pessimistic in the short term. I, I am very nervous that Joe Biden will have a lot of trouble defeating Donald Trump in, for, for many reasons, one of them being that if Joe Biden doesn't embrace a much bolder progressive agenda, I'm nervous that the base parts of the base of the party will not be energized. Uh, what are the odds he will? Do you, do you think there's any leverage being applied? I, I do. That might... I, I, I do because I think he wants to win the election. And now, so... The question is whether they're, he's going to be the Joe Biden of old who thinks that the way to win an election. I mean, this is this is not contra. This is this is just indisputable part of his record, which is Joe Biden has has been a, can, a candidate, a, a politician who's juxtaposed himself publicly, his brand, as in conflict with the base of the Democratic Party. I mean, this is a guy who put on his website in the Senate. You know, uh, I was one of the most conservative senators in the Senate, right? I mean, again, a triangulating brand. I am not progressive. That's why you should vote for me. I am not one of those, uh, you know, quote unquote, crazy liberals in my party. Look at me. I mean, he was doing that all the way up until 2008, you know, when he was saying, I'm, I'm willing to put, you know, social security cuts on the table when he was running for president uh, back then. So are his instincts and reflexes so retrograde that he thinks that's an appropriate, that's the way to win the election right now in 2020? Or is that, will he see at least the political utility of actually energizing uh, the and, and engaging the base of the party? 
I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm worried about it. Uh, and, and and I think if they think that they don't have a base problem, if they think they can just say Tr Donald Trump is bad, and that's enough to motivate people, I, I think they're sorely mistaken. And I want to be clear, I don't think it means that Democratic voters, rank-and-file Democratic voters, aren't going to vote for Joe Biden. But there is an intangible difference between rank-and-file voters being willing to cast their own personal vote for Joe Biden and rank-and-file voters and activists actually calling their friends and, you know, knocking on doors and, like, really, really, really motivating to boost as much turnout as possible. And I'm not sure Joe Biden uh, is committed to, to, to making that, to doing the things necessary to make that happen. So that's why I'm nervous in the short term. In the long term... I think that obviously we are winning the uh, the ideological debate, winning the, the and I think that is real and important. And I think a next generation of leaders um, better understands uh, and has a a better grasp of a new kind of politics that engages the base. And I think that if Joe Biden were to win, that one of the best things that 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 could be hoped for is that an emboldened Democratic Party base with elected officials in 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 contact with connection to elected officials in congress in the democratic party that 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 core base in the congress in tandem with the organized uh grassroots of the party could put things on joe biden's desk that would force him to 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 decide whether to sign them and at the end of the day I actually don't believe that Joe Biden would stand in the way if bills got to his desk, uh, which is a big if. I don't believe that he would stand in the way of uh, and veto a progressive agenda. Uh, he may try to undermine it while it's moving through Congress. We saw Barack Obama do that. I mean, that was a classic thing that Barack Obama did. But I think Joe Biden sees himself as a historical figure, a little bit self-aggrandizing. And if, if the case can be made, you have a chance to be the FDR if you simply sign your damn name on these bills, that I, I, I just don't think he wants to go down as like the guy who stopped uh, a transformative agenda. I don't think that means he's going to be the catalyst for it. I don't think that means he, I don't think that means he's, he's, he's going to push it when it's moving through Congress, but I just don't think he wants to be known as the obstacle. And that, actually creates a real opening. I would argue if you need, there's million, there's many different reasons to, to say that Joe Biden, having Joe Biden as president is better than Donald Trump. But for progressives in specific, I would argue that is one of the biggest reasons you can argue that even though Joe Biden's record is, is, is abhorrent, uh, you know, and I've been, I, you know, I've been one of the biggest critics. I was an investigative journalist who looked into his record. I mean, I, you know, I, I was on this campaign. I was pushing for contrast, but so I'm not a Joe Biden fan, right, at all. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he's really, really uh, has a terrible record for a Democrat. But a Joe Biden with a bad record and a Democratic Congress has got a chance to actually put things on his desk. Just as somebody who's been working in progressive politics for a long time, like that's so much better than Donald Trump getting reelected. Plus, for those that hate Joe Biden, the best way to keep hating on Joe Biden is to have him in office to hate on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you've got to go, David. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, best of luck with, um, you know, your future endeavors. 
Thank you. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you both having me. Sure thing. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed our discussion with David, our next bonus episode is going to be an extended discussion of the failures of the Bernie campaign and the structural obstacles to leftist politics in the United States. Um, So if you're interested, um, I encourage you to sign up at uh, patreon.com slash left anchor. You can check that out. Um, But if not, uh, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.